Every winter, your nice hosts take a break from new episodes of the program to work on a project together, serving up nice replays each week for you to enjoy while we're on hiatus. But this year, we're doing it a little differently. For this year's hiatus project, we're taking a card game prototype we created for an episode of Nice Game Jam, codenamed Robaston, and developing it into a full game. What's new is that we'll be recording our live weekly working sessions and posting them each week unedited to Patreon. It's hours of focused, productive discussion, or equally likely that it's hours of chaotic, fruitless bickering. <laughs> Either way, you'll learn something and have a good time. So if you want to be a fly on the wall as three game designers argue about which number is the right number and which number is just wrong, you'll need to become a patron of our program by joining patreon.com slash nicegamesclub and supporting the show at any level. As a patron, you'll also get our special 200th episode bonus segment and more. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. Once you've done that, come back here and have a listen to this week's nice replay. Steven, his arms wide. Episode 170, originally published April 14th, 2020. Steven, do you know what that title means? Uh, I'm probably going for a hug. <laughs> <laughs> do you know where that episode title comes from? Uh, no, it's, it's a Star Trek thing. All right, roll the tape. <laughs> is it a Star Trek thing? It is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like oh. one of the most famous yeah. episodes ever. It is. <laughs> I can't believe you haven't like been forced to watch it eight times. Have we not shown him yeah. Darmok? How have we not? Is that a, is that a Next Generation that. episode? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's mm-hmm. probably why. So, Martha, how did it feel doing that intro without hearing the theme song in the background? Very weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it Simply went spectacularly. It made me really nervous. <laughs> oh, and uh, it's weird, right? Like it's it's a uh, uh, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> uh, well, here we are, um, separately recording for our second session uh, remotely during the uh, worldwide quarantine, mm-hmm. um, and we have a special guest. Ellen is joining us. Hey, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listeners will know Ellen from many episodes she's been on in the past and here to talk about some fun topics, including to start out with the most important perennial topic on this program, Star Trek, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Of course. <laughs> All right, Steven, I know you're like, oh, this again. Yep. But there's three really good reasons why we're talking about Star Trek in this episode. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, first, we're, we're recording this uh, on April 5th, uh, which is First Contact Day. So okay. for Star Trek fans Happy who know, day. in 2063, uh, the Vulcans arrive uh, to Bozeman, Montana to visit the first, uh, the site of the first warp ship launch, which, uh, you know, heralded mankind's entry into the, uh, the neighborhood of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. It's a very important date. And so every year on uh, April 5th, we talk about Star Trek. So, <laughs> okay. Which is, you know, not that much different for most days. Yeah. Um, it's like the opposite of May 4th. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Keeps the world in balance. Yes. <laughs> Stephen, have you seen? There's a the movie that depicts this moment. Have you first contact? Have you seen it? No, I haven't. No. It's it's one of the really it's one of the best Star Trek movies because it's just a great like action movie and like it has lots of really good Star Trek themes. It's just a good movie generally. Okay. Cool. Would, well, would the I'll Star Trek fans in attendance agree? Um, I, yes. I have to admit, I have not seen it. What? We should do a remote movie day. That we we really should. <laughs> I'm the only um like the only non recent Star Trek movie I've seen now is Wrath of Khan or not. 
Yeah. Start whatever one the greatest generation did for their last tour. Uh huh. You watched it for that? Yes. <laughs> right before we went and went to the show. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so second of three reasons we're talking about Star Trek is uh, we all played Star Trek online together. We did. Um, the four of us uh, plus our pal Lane. Um, we talked about this in a previous episode that uh, Steven was uh, itching to try an MMO and the only one I would agree to play <laughs> Star Trek online. <laughs> <laughs> and so Martha, you encouraged us all to actually do it and we all did it and we had a pretty good time. Yeah. We played yeah, the it- tutor- tutorial sections. Yes, it was it was fun to play it with y'all. I don't know about the gameplay of the game. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, like, I'm not signing up for an MMO for the gameplay, anyways. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm cool with this. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot I, of like right clicking an enemy and then just watching your. It's like it, it 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 MMOs are like third person shooters or like third person action games, but they mm-hmm. don't play like that at all. Yeah, it took me quite a while to figure that out. Movement yeah. is also painful. I feel. Yeah. Just yeah, because there wasn't great gamepad support, and this this yes. show is full of gamepad players. <laughs> Controllers or die. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> it was a little wonky. It I didn't love, feel. I just expect every MMO to feel like World of Warcraft now, and it doesn't, and it didn't, yeah. and it shouldn't necessarily. But <laughs> my instincts are trained that way, and so it it, it did take me a while, um, mm-hmm. especially because I, I haven't really dug into the you know analyzing it. And I think I might when we play it again. But yeah. I feel like there are some affordances like in the UX um, and the UI that make it feel like it should play like a first-person shooter. Mm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting observation. Um, yeah. So I'll have to dig into that more the next time we play. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Um, I, it was kind of fun to see all the Star Trek lore in it. And it's, it's very fan fiction-y, you know? Like you fight like a ton of Borg ships immediately, which right. is, makes no sense really. But uh, we got to we got to uh, hang out with Captain Nog. That was fun, right, Stephen? Yeah, that was nice. I did like that. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, actually, it was nice because like I don't, you know, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, but like I have watched um, the most of the uh, Deep Space Nine, and mm-hmm. so like a lot of the references in the beginning were Deep Space Nine references. I was like, oh, I understood that reference. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I was I thought it was very jarring the fact that all the MMO like monetization stuff is in there in the Star Trek oh, universe yeah. because in the Star Trek universe only like the Federation doesn't use money. So I thought it would have been less like out of context if they had all the merchants be Ferengi and like you had to use gold plus platinum with the Ferengi. Right, right. Like, that that would make total sense to me, but they're not. Mm-hmm. It's like Star Trek Starfleet people selling you stuff, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait! You don't have money. What is this? <laughs> yeah, you ha- you have to buy a paint job on your Federation starship, which is like, all right, fine. I mean, it's a free to play <laughs> game, so it's unavoidable. But yeah, it's more jarring than most uh, games I think that have. Mm-hmm. Well, the standard is if the standard is free, but if you want to get the expanded paint job, <laughs> right? Yeah, which we all did, right? We all spent yeah. like. 20 minutes in the ship customization. Like, ch- check out my flames. <laughs> Good time. And I'm going through being like, oh, I want I want mine to look like really cool, like you could see on, on one of the episodes and everyone else is just like, how can I make this more pink? <laughs> that's, that's the right attitude. You could have more fun that way. And I'm trying to like work within the confines of like the fictional Star Trek universe I love so much. But like, no. It's a toy box. I should just play with it, you know. And it's, it's actually it's 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 a uh, pretty good at that. Like it it bends and breaks the rules of the fictional universe it's set. But like 
in a way that's like fun. Like I, I'm I'm kind of into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we have our third Star Trek topic. <laughs> Ellen, this one's yours. Mm-hmm. I watched Picard. All yeah. of it. <laughs> in a couple. Like days. all in one go or. Oh, uh, split. We split it up for like a couple days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it is definitely like we we binge things in this house. We don't have regular TV. We just binge stuff. Um, unless this, this is a binge binge house family. This is a binge family. Um, yeah. <laughs> the only things we don't binge are the things that we are not allowed to, like Westworld. Um, but yeah, we we got onto CBS All Access and watched all of Picard, and I really liked it. Um, yeah. I thought it was, it felt more like Star Trek than a lot of the recent movies have for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of cool the way that they, uh, they like, thought, you know, brought out back a whole bunch of stuff. It felt a little bit like a theme park, kind of like the MMO did. Like, okay, they're only <laughs> having this in here because everyone loves this character. But I appreciated it. I liked it. Yeah, sometimes fan service is like, okay. Like, it's it, it does the job. It's fun, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see Discovery? I have not seen Discovery. Okay, because that, that's interesting, because I think Discovery lives in that place, it, the way you describe the recent movies and Picard, how it made you feel. I think Discovery lives right in between those things. You know, it has like, it has the true spirit of Star Trek, but it's also kind of got way too much action. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, I think everyone kind of approaches it a little differently. But I like Picard too. I think um, it, it had it, I guess the, Maybe it's faint praise, but like it really had its heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. That's uh, exactly yeah. right. I think that nails. And that's it. kind of the most important thing for me for new Star Trek is like, you know, it's a billion dollar franchise, and so I kind of don't care if it's great as long as it holds true to the values of Star Trek, which is a real thing. Like, not a lot of franchises can claim to have like core principles. But yeah. Star Trek does, and it's like. They can be kind of crummy episodes even, as long as they hold true to that. That's kind of what matters to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, I I don't pick up a Star Trek show to see, like, the best in television. Um, Yeah. Even though (laughs) throughout my um, time watching a bunch of different Star Trek shows, I have seen some great television. But I, I go there for, you know, the hope and the optimism, I think, is actually something that Picard mentioned. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's an there's an amazing speech he gives, which I mean, this, the finale's been out for a couple weeks, so I don't think this uh, you know spoilers. You can skip ahead a bit, but there's this great speech where he's like all of the evidence in the show is telling you that this like uh, terrible prophecy that the Romulans have been uh, you know worrying about is in fact a, a true thing, and their their like murderous rampage to prevent this horrible thing. You mu- you start to think, oh, maybe they have a point, and at that moment in the show. Picard gives this speech that just says, like, you know, we're better than that. Like, we, like yeah, maybe the, there's this prophesized doom, but, like, we're humans. We're smart. We're capable. We're empathetic. Like, we have tools. And I just love that so much. And I don't know that the show mm-hmm. paid it off 100%, but, like, that moment was so strong for me because it really was about, like, you know, if we're a show that had, like, a mythical prophecy, which is, like, I'm not excited about, that's real fantasy to me. Mm-hmm. And Picard had that, and I wasn't excited about it. But just, I did like its take on it. it was a, a unique enough and Star Trek enough that I, I did get on board in the end. Yeah, we could dig into this really in, de- in depth because I'm <laughs> watching Picard along with Westworld and they're similar. Oh, there's some similar topics, yeah. and very different approaches. Um, yeah, that's true. So 
But yeah, that that sounds like a, that sounds like bonus episode content or something. Right, right. We'll, we'll have to chamber that one for later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need something to do. <laughs> Are you completely like how uh, we talked previously about how you really just want to get out of the house, Stephen? You want to get back to your office? Is that yeah. getting worse and worse now? Uh, I mean. I, I just want to socialize with people. I live by myself, so um, I haven't. The only people I interact with are the people I order food from, and then it's really just because everybody is like delivering food and just putting it on the door or putting it uh, outside of your door. Like mm-hmm. I go out there and I'll pick up my food and they'll say thank you, like from tw- ten feet away or something. And I'll be like right. thank you, and then that is all the interaction I get. <laughs> and you really want to be like, what's new with you, what pal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please talk to me, but but I'm not doing that. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of where I'm at. So I miss mm-hmm. the office because I had daily interactions with people and stuff, and it was nice. But uh, it's cool. I make it do with what I got. Someday we will be allowed to breathe the same air as other people. Yes. Yeah. And then that day I will be giving hugs. Yes. <laughs> so watch out, everybody. <laughs> Steven's just running down the street. His arms are stretched. <laughs> and I tell you, like it, we do imagine the end of this as being like a moment, but it's it's going to be a slow process. But once yeah. once we all feel safe and that process is over, I would not be surprised if like random hugs on the street are not a common thing. Yeah, because we, it's a thing we all share. Like mm-hmm. it's uh, we like in my lifetime. We we've had things that have been world events, but nothing that everyone on the planet shares. Yeah. In 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 exact not exactly the same way, but in a lot of the same ways. So um, you know, w- speaking to that Star Trek sense of optimism, I I have a little bit of that as to how we're going to come through with this. Yeah. You know. Steve, yeah. His arms wide. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> If we had a Star Trek podcast, it would be redundant with this podcast because we talk about Star Trek so much. <laughs> oh, you don't you don't say. <laughs> uh, Martha expertly brought us into this topic, which is mine redundancy. Uh, this is something in games that I think we talk we talk about repetition in games, and this is a little bit of that. We'll probably uh, you know recover some of that ground, but um, redundancy is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> but I think what we're talking about here is is um, things that are uh, do the same purpose, right? So uh, visual cues and audio cues that are meant to communicate the same thing to the player. Uh, mechanics that there are multiples of um, to either uh, teach the idea by giving it to you multiple times, or by giving you a sense of like uh, mastery by by doing the same kind of thing uh, um, over and over, so you have a um, you know that that re- the redundant element serves a a, a purpose in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is like mechanical redundancy because I think this is like the crunchiest part of it. And I think like uh, stats is the is the main example I'm thinking of. Like yeah. min maxing stats, and this is a problem that I have with games where I just like I don't like seeing the same systems over and over again because I can kind of see through it and it kind of bothers me. Like as mm-hmm. a game designer, I'm like I don't need this four times. But like I'm not approaching it the way a lot of players do, where it's it's enjoyable in that sense. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, with specifically with stats, like oftentimes, most of the time in games, you want to deal as much damage as possible while taking as little damage as possible. So yeah. there are like things you need to in order to prevent that, and sometimes they'll differentiate it by like 
um, different types of damage you can deal or take. So like in, in like Pokemon, for example, there's a what's it physical and special mm-hmm. attack and da- uh, defense um, and stuff like that. And then, but like they basically do the same thing. They're just like different forms of the same kind of thing. Yeah, um, like you, you describe it, it, it boils down to that one ratio, one ratio, like doing more damage and 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 uh, uh, receiving less damage, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but then it's like different types of damage, and then this thing is is immune to this type of damage, but not that type of damage. And it ends up being it just complicated, but it all still when you um, you know reduce the common denominators, it all ends up being that simple equation again. Yeah, and I have a really hard time getting into that. But without it, the game would a, a game would be essentially like very uh, I mean boring, right? Yeah, it was just a, a simple matter of of like this number is bigger than that number. Uh, well, yeah, and it's it specifically with that case, like because you the the stats are distributed amongst different types of damage outputs. Um, the the different ways you can deal damage end up becoming unredundant, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. Like, because, like, if you, if this thing is weak to fire and you do only fire damage, then, like, you're going to do really well. But if this thing is resistant to fire, you might want to, cons- you might need to consider a different avenue of damage um, yeah, in order to yeah. do it. But, like, if, if you could only just deal damage and take damage, then, like, the way you, the, the, the different ways you can deal damage are, uh, will become unnecessary or you know uh, yeah so like it, it so as a result like it adds it needs some decision making before you start this encounter or whatever yeah and so sometimes it'll be a case of like preparing for what's ahead and so mm-hmm. the, the gameplay is in either guessing or knowing uh in, in in some matter of your skill what's what you have to deal with yeah sometimes it's random right right um and then, like, I'm thinking of, like, uh, uh, card games, like a game like Magic or yeah. Keyforge, where things pair well against something else or whatever, and, like, you you bring out your this deck to deal with that person's that deck or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a, a lot of the strategy becomes in uh, that sort of pre- predictability or re- and less in the actual mechanics themselves. It's almost, mm-hmm. like, extra textual in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of, I think in when you get into, like, the meta of a certain kind of, of game, um, yeah. the the redundancy factor comes into like how what role this deck or character or what have you serves versus another character deck or whatever. Um, so like uh, I'll bring fighting games in it because I get to bring uh-huh. something into the conversation <laughs> too. Uh, <laughs> um, zone, there are a bunch of different kinds of zoners in fighting games. So like there are some characters that have swords or whatever, and they can keep people away. Um, there are other characters that can shoot projectiles and like that's their whole gimmick um, and stuff like that. But um, in um, games that have a ton of characters, there often are like three or four characters that do that like zone in the same way. And like maybe they have very distinct advantages and disadvantages in very situational uh, occasions. But uh, for the most part, like they do the same thing. And so, like, you yeah. can kind of pick, at, at that point, you can kind of pick, if you like zoners, you can pick who you like best aesthetically instead. So, yeah. like, their right. their role, but their, like, role, and that character ends up feeling somewhat redundant as a result of them sharing the same space that another character does. Right. The mechanics are redundant, but the aesthetics are not. And so, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, yeah, I think that I was just thinking about the, the best kind of, framework to use as a lens for this particular topic for at least for my brain and that was kind of putting it into like the mda framework you're talking about like repetitive or redundant mechanics 
that might create some repetition in dynamics, but their main difference is in the aesthetics. Um, yeah. 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 I, um, coming back to what Mark was saying about like, like uh, something making it complicated um, versus complex, I guess. And I was thinking about Borderlands 3. I've been playing a lot of Borderlands 3 lately. Um, and there's a bunch of damage types in Borderlands 3. You know, there's <laughs> Frozen and there's Shock and there's there's fire and there's corrosive radioactive. and radioactive yeah. and there's yeah. slag in Borderlands 3, thank goodness. But, um, <laughs> and like in, in fourth and so on, so on and so forth. And I don't like to have to focus on all of them. So there are a couple damage types I completely ignore. Probably yeah. to my detriment in terms of min-maxing, but, um, I don't, yeah, it's, it, some of that redundancy or maybe at that point it's repetition. Um, mm-hmm comes across feel... to be optional for the player. And I think maybe having that option yeah. is kind of fun, but not necessarily taking advantage of it, or at least having choice over how much to take advantage of that repetition. Yeah, well, you were hinting at it just there at the end, but I was going to ask, like, do you feel that having those extra types that maybe you're not as interested in, because uh, you said it both ways, it either it feels a little bit like you're missing out, but also it feels like maybe those are just uh, your aesthetic choices, right? And so the game have, has all that complexity, to let you pick and choose what you like, or is it, or maybe it's both, that it has all that complexity and you feel like you're missing out by not engaging with all of it? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I think I think it. Um, it's kind of, a, I feel like it's kind of, I'm trying to think about this maybe in terms of musical analogy, but you've got, you know, a few different characters, you've got many different ways to configure those characters, and, but those those many different ways have some similarities. So regardless of what character you're playing in Borderlands 3, you are going to be able to play with some of the same weapons and some of the same damage types as all the other characters, even though they might have different abilities and they for sure have different aesthetics. Um, and so those kind of repetitions, the repetition of those damage types and, and weapons and so on and so forth and mechanics across those different characters enables you as a player to like feel like you have a lot of choice because you do um even though if you're looking at some of those choices you're going to see repeated or redundant um dynamics i think in in the way that mm-hmm. those choices are set up but the aesthetics of of playing through that um in those different ways might not feel repetitive uh yeah. so if i play through the same story with um the same character amara that i'm playing um, and I change her build up a little bit, or I deal different types of damage. It's going to bring a different experience, even though some of the some of their experience is repetitive or redundant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good way of looking at it too, because like if you um, have those different, if you have like multiple types of ways to do the same kind of thing, then like as a player, you can choose a play style or aesthetic that you enjoy more. So even though it is. Uh, I guess even though it is like repetitive and it feels as though it's unnecessary to have like this character or this type damage type or something like that, you can still um, the 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 feeling that you get from this uh, form of thing is can be different from another thing even though they do the same thing. Right. Way of describing that, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when when we were prepping the notes for this episode, Stephen, you brought up. Uh, the, all the different character types in in fighting games like Smash or yeah. in a game like League, mm-hmm. and and you're sort of hint, you're sort of uh, getting at that, which is that like 
having those redundancies is a lot about options. Right. But then sometimes, as you were hinting at earlier, it can be um, where it's too many options or there are options that are just not as popular after a, after a time. Yeah, so, like, um, I, I think League of Legends is a particularly uh, good example because, like, they uh, built the game over time, and as the game... Uh, became larger and they added more characters they added more characters that could do more things and that older characters more older characters were limited more but like they still did the same kind of stuff um and so uh like league of legends in in the in the um higher level meta or whatever where you know pros are getting paid to learn how to play this game um and you know compete against other people uh it uh, becomes a situation where like there are characters that are just not seen in pro uh, tournaments because they um, they do they do the same thing as another character but worse, right. um, or they can't do as much stuff, um, and so like they end up being uh, you know just, you just don't see them anymore. Um, I think at yeah. like levels like me, for example, who's like silverly in, in League of Legends, <laughs> uh-huh. um, you, it doesn't really matter who you pick. Um, yeah. Um, but like, if you're playing at like super high tier diamond or whatever it is, then like you really want to pay attention to who you pick. And so like, as a result, like you'll get characters that can do, um, that can shoot stuff, but also can like block people or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll do, sure. they'll be able to do more things. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. um, I guess like scope, not scope creep, power creep, um, uh, which I don't think we've talked about much on the show, but, uh, it's basically when like, as you start adding more things to the game, uh, newer things become more powerful, and every everything uh, in the in the past is not as powerful, and it has to and it has to keep keep up. So like you have to keep balancing things, and so things just become more powerful and more exaggerate and more uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, maybe like hard countery. Like this thing uh-huh. ends up becoming um, because it's so powerful, it ends up being a hard counter to this thing and so like if you pick this thing this thing will the other thing will lose so you have to pick the you have to keep like you know it's you like always a have rock to paper bayonetta yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> smash for a term you always have to pick bayonetta yeah well um, you're you're touching now on a different definition of redundancy which yeah. is that it's uh, redundant and therefore can be shed away so yeah. like an, an older league character who doesn't have as much mechanical depth perhaps mm-hmm. um, is is redundant in the sense that there's no point to them. Yes. Right? Exactly. And not in sort of our more maybe uh, heroic definition of redundant, which is like, you know, uh, two versions that are equal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like the way that uh, Riot Games has solved this issue in League of Legends is by reworking older characters to make them as complicated as new characters. And so <laughs> <laughs> that just makes it so that everything is complicated and it sucks <laughs> these kind of I mechanics and inflation yeah yeah, yeah. actually yeah. yes that is kind of it's like a budget um and they've mm-hmm. just opted to put a lot of their budget into adding more mechanics to things um, right right yeah. so, i mean from my where i sit as a designer that feels like a, a total failure but like the game is more popular than ever so oh no uh, well it's it's i mean it is it's a failure in that like you know people who used to play those champions uh you know lose out on uh, the old champion styles and stuff, even though like some yeah. of the things that they used to do could have been problematic for the meta of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but like it creates it basically they're using an old champion to create a new champion. And so like they're breathing fresh life into it. So, yeah. um, you know, new players can see that and go, Oh, this champion is cool again. And then they'll play. It. 
So. Right, right. It's it services the ongoing living nature of a game like that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So that's the question then is as a designer, like how do you approach these these kinds of things? Like how do you make it? How do you get comfortable with some of the consequences? Um, well, I I like for for Fingence, um what we've tried to do um, is in, well, what I've tried to encourage is instead of like sometimes we'll have some characters that like we want to imp- like we want to serve a role. But uh, we want them to do something different. I've encouraged us to make new characters to do that, which <laughs> isn't great because, uh, like, that's I more. I feel like work. you guys had a pact like three years ago to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, rules are meant to be broken, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, um, like another way we've tried to do it is like you tried to add these abilities to characters through. Um, the, the shop system, like you can purchase yeah. um, new abilities for your characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and like not every character has access to all these different things. So um, that allows them to be built in a way that like you could, you could, so like you could use one of the tankier characters in Vengeance, um, similarly to other tanky characters, or you can use them and change the way that they do things so that they can deal more damage, but the, the, they'll, they'll deal damage in the way that makes sense for that character. And so, like, sure, maybe they sure. do more damage to a ton of enemies, but not as much damage to a single target or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can spec them out in a way that makes them unredundant. But there are, like, right. redundant builds, per se, that you can have in, in Fingence. That's how I've so, dealt with it. Uh, Martha and Ellen, you have both had some time with Fingence. So uh, between those two options, more characters or more options on a fewer number of characters to introduce the sort of like advantages of redundancy, which approach speaks more to you? Well, when I play Vengeance, I don't have this problem because I only play Sparky. (laughs) Although (laughs) you reworked Sparky at one point and it really messed me up. But uh, (laughs) but then then I figured it out. So, yeah, yeah. As well, long as I mean, Sparky's in the game, I'm good. <laughs> well, that's that's. I mean, that's that's like Sparky is a damage dealing character, right? We have a few characters that deal a bunch of damage, but like because we have um, avenues to make characters feel different or like serve different purposes, um, Sparky is allowed to exist in the game. <laughs> it's a weird way wow. of describing that, but <laughs> wow, I see how it is. Do you know what You're I mean? Just like alienate all your Sparky fans, Stephen. <laughs> uh, I mean, like uh, we can have Sparky as a damage dealer, and also have other characters be damage dealers, and it's okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Yes, but Sparky is the best, so basically, uh, all other options don't matter. <laughs> right. Exactly. See, this is yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> I, hope, I, I hope I won those Sparky fans back. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Yay. <laughs> That kind of makes sense of the way that I was thinking about it, though, because, like, the way that I play Fingence is with other people, and I feel Mm -hmm. like because of the way that I play with other people, it would be more fun for me to have more characters that have different kind of core abilities and have this broad range of different people I can choose and just jump in and start playing differently. Yeah. Um, Although I really can appreciate the other the other type of redundancy as well, where you have like deep talent trees and lots of different flexibility in terms of what abilities you can grant your character, and and yeah. sometimes you do run into redundancies or um, with the other people that you're playing with, or in the case of the Borderlands three playthrough I, I did recently, um, 
we had a really amazing ranged character and I was in melee, so I basically never got to anything. Um, <laughs> it was already dead by the time I got there. So it wasn't, I don't know if it was so much redundancy as, I don't know, bad planning. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I think with Finjin specifically, I would like, I lean a little bit more towards the broad range of characters. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Especially if we're uh, jumping I, in. Mm-hmm. I think that works the best because if you have lots of depth and you want someone to join, just, oh, hey, come play. Like, and they have to figure out a bunch of trees. Like, that might not be as fun as, oh, you get to pick between, like, you know, all these different characters, but you only have to learn, like, three things about each one. Sure. Yeah. I, I think as a mul- uh, multiplayer experience, that approach makes more sense. But as a single player experience, which Vengeance also is, mm. it makes more sense to have those redundancies built as part of a customization system, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking about like when I play with others, um, there's only like there's maybe two or three characters I, I sort of go towards. Mm-hmm. But um, I do because they are the clearest, the, mo- the most clearly defined characters. I yeah. think that I'm, I'm more attracted to. But playing alone, I would have the freedom to be a little bit more, to play around a little bit more. But with multiplayer, I wouldn't mind having multiple characters that feel very similar uh, in service of getting to the action. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have two sort of, uh, uh, sort of all-purpose Mario types or, you know, high damage uh, uh, characters or a couple of tanks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And enough differences between them. Either, and it could be just purely aesthetic or just like they, they start off with a different, uh, you know, uh, ability. Um, that I feel like is a really good use of, of redundancy, but also it maybe takes away from the sort of unique qualities of each character that I think um, that you you are going for. So like there's a tons of push and pull with systems yeah. like these, right? Yeah, we basically just opted to do all the things. So <laughs> we have well, I mean, maybe my point is there's no yeah. perfect way to do it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, totally. Like any anything you choose is going to like live at 60% effectiveness in one category and 90% effectiveness in another. Mm-hmm. And then another player is going to come in and approach it differently. And then those same qualifications are going to have different success levels based on right. the way they play and the way the mechanics work. And then there's a single player and a multiplayer mode. And so like maybe chasing optimal uh, balance for all that stuff is kind of difficult. And maybe yeah. that's why League can be a little messy and it's fine. Mm-hmm. I I'm think giving that, it a lot of benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. Like every like, it's not just like game designers creating the characters, but it's also like you know the players approaching this game and how they approach the game determines what is strong and what is not strong at a certain any given point. And yeah. like as people play a game, they'll discover more things about it and uh, um, start be uh, start uh, developing their own play styles and stuff mm-hmm. that will. In, like that that will lean them towards one type of character or another type of character and so like that that builds upon itself where like the if the best players of the game are playing this type of character then um people start building um or they start developing strategies that beat that type of character um and stuff like that and it's like oh it, the way meant like the way that a game's meta expands is really cool to see yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's mechanical complexity, or mechanical <laughs> yes. redundancy, right? Yeah. But I want to talk about uh, some of the specific examples, and we'll just blow through these by quick because there's something a topic I want to uh, get a little deeper on. Okay. But like, uh, you know, uh, redundancy is not just about the uh, same mechanics; it's about using different mechanics to serve the same purpose. So the yes. audio is a really big one for this. So the examples I have are like sound sourcing, like you know where sound comes from, 
um, mm-hmm. is is paired with sort of visual indicators, you know, flashing arrows and the like, the trails yeah. of blood, that sort of thing. Um, to sort of to, and the idea then is to like make it very clear um, that this is something that the designer is is putting on the main path rather than a side path or a bonus or something like that. There's like a subtle language to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, and I think that requires like um, a lot of like you don't know that you've done it right. Yeah. You know. Like it could be too on the nose or not quite as much, um, which is sort of interesting. But then, like, there's also just the tons of things like uh, in UI having sound effects uh, uh, um, match up with uh, actions to sort of make it very clear. And a lot of times when you're playing a game, you're not actually looking at the thing you're interacting with, mm-hmm. like you're multitasking. And so yeah. having audio to help with that, I think, is really important. Um, but then also, like, NPC dialogue, you have like characters saying, like, you know, like hinting the player where to go by talking about the thing they need to do. Right. Like kind of almost even to another character off on the side or something. Yeah, like that. and then that thing being like a giant glowing ball of light or whatever <laughs> yeah. to make it even more apparent this is the thing you need at this moment. Yeah. yeah. But all of this is like, uh, th- these examples are like tutorialization. And that's mm-hmm. the topic I think I want to get into. And I think, Ellen, you have a lot to say on this topic. Uh, I, I sort of put in the notes, uh, spelling something out repeatedly, and Ellen, you seem to react to that. The interesting thing about, yeah, so you're, if you have a tutorial experience where you're teaching your player how to play, um, I think some of the best tutorial experiences when I think of um, kind of the, the, the explicit desire to create a, a version or a part of the game where the learner is learning to play by playing, I think of like Mega Man and I think of Zelda, I think of um, uh, Metroid, Super Metroid especially was really good, and one of the games that just completely popped into my head right now was Inside by Playdead. Mm. Um, because there's, no, there's almost no explicit anything in the game. You just learn it by moving. Um, and they use they use some of the elements you were talking about, Mark, to, to confirm to the player that, yes, they are supposed to do the thing that they are trying to do. So they use light, they use sound, they use environmental restrictions to get the player just to start by moving from left to right mm-hmm. and and make it very clear to the player that they're pretty much always going to have to go from left to right and they can sometimes go backwards but it might not always there's not always going to be a reward there's not something they're going to have to go do a lot with moving the opposite direction um they were using sound to keep driving that player from the you know one direction to the next and and they use sound like in there's this one specific spot in that game where and it's it was so terrifying. You haven't played inside. It is <laughs> it's a scary mm. game. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there was this sound that it was like getting louder and louder slowly as you moved through this zone, and it was like this mm-hmm. thumping sound, and it felt muted like it was behind a really huge door or wall or something. And it got louder and louder and louder until you reached this end point of this zone where there was a door and a wall and the sound was louder than ever. And so you, you knew because of this redundancy in the lighting and the environment and in the sound that you were about to see the thing. And it was done so well. Um, but I think when I think about the redundancy, that you, the redundancy of communication that you're talking about, Mark, like that is a that moment for me in Inside completely uh, fulfills that example. And it was so right, powerful right. and scary. It, it sounds like that was kind of the the sum is uh, what's the word? 
Uh, greater than the sum of its parts? Yeah, greater than the sum of its parts. That's the one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds like that was that moment. Um, and I think that like a lot of these kinds of things are that kind of thing. Like Especially when you combine audio and visual things. Mm-hmm. Because I, I in the human body, they serve different purposes. But like in a game, they can serve the same thing. Um, yeah. But like, so having having both of those, having those combinations can help you know, tutorialize something or make it clear that this is a good thing or make it clear it's a bad thing, stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's helpful. And then the, the question is, is um, in, in the example that Ellen cited, it's taking many different things that sort of contribute to the same purpose and it, it feels of a single piece, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a little different from what other games do or what other games have to do which is to um, use that redundancy to hammer it home, right? Either because it's something the player must know, because the system is complicated, right? The advantage of inside is it's a very elegant design. So there's not a lot of complexity to get lost in, Mm. I think. Um, But then the the, the question I have is, uh, some of these repetitive elements that are required, are they there because people need to hear it twice to fully understand it? Or because they need to hear it twice because they weren't paying attention the first time? Which, as, as when we do playtests, we know one thing about players is they don't read instructions. Yeah. And so, so like, <laughs> does, that, does it feel a little bit like a failure that you have to, you know, between the player and the game? Like, how do you make that feel good and not kind of like, uh, hey, listen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, well, I mean, I think the way, um, well, like Mario, for example, the way they approach it is they'll give you a new thing in the level. This is like the, how all Mario levels are designed. They'll give you a new thing in a level, and they'll give you it in a, a framed it in a way where it's relatively unsafe, but you can experiment with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll give it to you another way, but like this is it's more dangerous now. There's possibility of failure. Um, and then like eventually by the end of the level, you'll get tested on it, where you have to do it. You have to show your understanding of this mechanic, this new thing, in order right. to finish the level. Um, and so that could be a way of making something like having that redundancy but having the, the the threat level the danger level the the difficulty curve makes it feel like a unique or interesting challenge right you, right the, the mechanic is really that last challenge yeah but the things leading up to it are the redundant elements but it's this kind of sneakily hidden inside additional ramping up gameplay yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah 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 that makes sense well and Human brains don't remember things perfectly the first time. That would be scary and probably not something we actually want. You know, like, we obviously we remember moments, or at least I do, remember moments where it's like, okay, I should know your name because I've been talking to you for two weeks. I don't right. know your name. Um, and that's embarrassing and that's, you know, not a good feeling. But on the other hand, there's just so much stuff that you come into contact on a day-to-day basis that's not important to remember and so yeah that forgetting curve um and the the learning designers the the learning thread behind this i think starts with ebenhaus um so that's a that's a word we can put into the show notes but um it takes your your curve the you hit you hear new information or you encounter something new and without reinforcement that curve is pretty steep and that your knowledge and your memory and your ability to recall important information about that thing, that concept, mm-hmm. that place, that mechanic, um, without reinforcement, drops off pretty quickly. Mm, yeah. And so before that curve hits bottom, 
um, you want to bring it, you want to make another hit and reinforce what that understanding is to bring that you know, knowledge back to the top. And the, the more you do that within that curve, the sh more shallow your curve gets. So oh. with reinforcement, your curve like kind of flattens out and you can maintain um, strong knowledge or strong performance with that skill for a longer mm -hmm. period of time. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. good tutorial levels that don't just say, hey, here's the thing you need to press and then never say it again. Um, they deliberately reinforce the skill or the mechanic um, or the pieces of the mechanic as that as the player progresses through that tutorial level. And they're doing that with a little bit of space practice to kind of reinforce that as the player's building their understanding of the game. Um, and they're doing it to flatten out that forgetting curve so that that knowledge of whatever that skill is or that mechanic stays mm -hmm. top of mind as, you know, as much as the, the player needs it. Yeah, yeah. So how does that work with uh, skills that need to be built on previous skills? Because the thing I was thinking of when you started talking about this is um, the, the creation tools in Dreams, um, which are really quite, it's basically just learning Maya. Like, you know, like it's fun. not that much different. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a little more fun than that, but like, and not, maybe not quite as complicated, but it's, it is, they're so powerful. And uh, I had a lot of trouble with the tutorial because I, just, I wanted to move through it quicker than it, it would allow me. And, um, and I felt like, oh, I got this, I got this. And then I, I'm like, oh, I feel like I remember how to do everything, but I didn't know why I needed to, do, to know half of it. Mm -hmm. and it, it felt like, um, but I'm like, but you know, that's probably the, like, I, I, not that it's a failure. It's just that it's hard to do something like that when you need to say like, you need to learn this skill so that this skill will make more sense. And, and, and having that paced correctly for everybody sure. is a real challenge, right? Yeah, it is. It, and um, there's a, there's a, something that can become automatic. So when you're learning skills, uh, and this, our language around describing what happens with learning is so limited. And I wish that we had other different words for like learning versus acquiring or honing or something. Because when I think sure. about learning, I think about learning a fact. When I think about a skill, I think about like practicing it. Um, mm -hmm. When you're first learning a skill in a game or not in a game or anything, you're, you're, you are un you are consciously incompetent. You know that you don't know it. And, <laughs> and so you approach learning with a specific mindset that is appropriate to your conscious, you know, conscious incompetence. Prior to that, you were unconsciously incompetent. You didn't even know that you didn't know. And as you start to do it, you realize, oh yeah, this is, this is all stuff I don't know. Um, yeah. Before I knew about, you know, Borderlands 3 coming out on PC, I didn't even know it was something that I needed to learn. And then when I started <laughs> the game, I realized I was bad at it. That was my conscious incompetence. Um, when, you, when you practice more, you become uh, consciously competent. You become knowledgeable about the skill. You, you become good at doing the thing. And you know that you're becoming good at doing the thing. Yeah. With enough practice beyond that, kind of into the realm of you become an expert, you are unconsciously competent. You do it without even thinking about it. And I think great tutorials in games are structured specifically to get you to that unconscious competence quickly. Mm -hmm. And okay. I think they do that by planning repetition, but each repetition of the mechanic builds on it until you can use, you can use that mechanic, you can use that skill 
in the way that the game needs you to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> That's cool. As designers, um, how can we how can we make sure we're leveraging that? Playtest. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Well, Got that's him. a great note to go out on for this topic. <laughs> the, the perennial advice from Nice Games Club. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I should say something more than that. I don't know. I mean, like, I think I think as you're designing your tutorial, be aware that, that your player will go through those steps. It may take, depending on how complex your game is, how complicated and how complex your game is, it may take them longer to go through those steps than you know what if your game were something else so like your game if your game were your were inside your steps between conscious competence or conscious incompetence and unconscious competence is going to be pretty quick because all you really need to do is run right and jump and yeah. you learn to do that pretty automatically very quickly with just a little bit mm-hmm. of practice um and then the rest of the game is just trying to figure out what in the environment is supposed to kill you and the answer is pretty much everything um, <laughs> And you learn that pretty quick. You learn that pretty quick. Uh, but with like um, Final Fantasy, you might not get to conscious um, or unconscious competence until several hours into the game because there are yeah. so many screens and the, the real thing that happens with the story isn't even introduced until 20 hours in. And like, <laughs> so, but those, those stages are still going to happen for your players. So just be aware that they're happening and think about, um, you know, be maybe explicit about where you're intending your learner to be or where can you learner player learner at this point they're the same where you can expect yeah. your player to be at any point in the game so like yeah yeah and validate with your play testing that that's where they are when right, you're supposed right. to reach that point yeah i think a lot of times as designers we say um like oh this is the part where they learn it and this is the part where they play it but really yeah. it's a it's a wider gamut right it's a, yeah. it's a slower process that happens as they play right not just like oh we did the tutorial part now you know everything it doesn't really work like that right right, right. Yeah. and that goes back to like the frustration i have about how we describe learning playing for humans is learning like yeah <laughs> so are you ever done learning while you're playing the game i don't think so <laughs> I don't know. You're practicing. And you're still learning things. It's frustrating. Words oh my suck. gosh! Now I'm gonna call video when I play video games. I'm gonna call it my video game practice, and everything <laughs> will be good. <laughs> Makes it seem more like a more valuable use of your time. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do y'all use Twitter? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> good. Are you following Nice Games Club on Twitter? The ad- that one answer the, better be yes. It's yes. one of the only ones that I <laughs> Yes. Good, good, good. Uh, it's fun. It's a good place. And Dale does a really good job retweeting things and tweeting about stuff. Uh, one of these tweets that Dale uh, posted recently um, is like, this is what it'd be like to be your cat. Where like, this is kit. This is guy who's just e- eating breakfast. Uh as though like you know you were as though he was in the room with you to practice social distancing it's, it sounds it's less awkward than it sounds <laughs> but still awkward <laughs> deliciously awkward yeah <laughs> but it's pretty great and I appreciated that tweet so I wanted to and that's it the that's one of the three categories of tweets that Dale uh, puts out which is 
uh, retweeting game dev content, things that make her laugh, or cat content. Yes. That's the three cat- the three pillars of Nice Games Club Twitter. Yes. Basically <laughs> this, yeah. <laughs> so what you can get you more. <laughs> you can get more of that content on our Twitter, at Nice Games Club. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Once we can all go back to being in physical spaces with other people, um, Mm -hmm. one place that people could go to is an arcade. Aha! Yes, that's my topic, is arcades. <laughs> because I went to Uptown, like, uh, two months times? ago. In the, in the before times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, went to, I went to Uptown, which is a, a modern arcade. It's basically... They call them arcades. Yeah, right? it's like, well, it's an arcade, but with alcohol. Arcade <laughs> is copyright, with copywritten, cop, trademarked. So oh, is it really? That's why, it that's why everyone isn't... That's why everyone... Who has a barcade doesn't call it a barcade because <laughs> the barcade bar in Atlanta or wherever it is is oh, very, very like very litigious. Yes, litigious. That's the word. Yeah, because it's Litig- a cool word. It I is bet they cool have word. Kleenex there and <laughs> <laughs> <In> Q-tips. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I went there and I thought that like I was I was thinking about how um, arcades that I think of. Uh, when I think of an arcade, which is like the classical, there's just a bunch of arcade machines and a bunch of 12-year-olds running around uh, smacking their joysticks or whatever <laughs> to get the thing to move. Um, it's, it's, it's very different from the, the up-down place that I went to. Um, because, like, I mean, first of all, there's alcohol. And, and 12-year-olds can't drink alcohol. Uh, at least not in the U.S. Or, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, the building was not really, like, it wasn't really built for... Um, an arcade, because yeah. like the 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 bar was like in the center of this the of the room where I think people would be running around playing arcades or whatever. Um, so it was really hard to like move, especially because it was really packed when we, when we got there. Um, it was really hard to move between different games and stuff because all of the different um, because like it was just so packed. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a lot. And then like it had it had an eighties aesthetic, which makes sense for arcades, I think. Um, but it, like it had, um, what was it? Uh, American Gladiators playing on TVs and stuff, which was kind of neat. Um, <laughs> but they they still had a lot of the classic games. So they had like Street Fighter, they had Punch Out, they had uh, they had uh, a Super Mario Brothers arcade game. We played this one arcade game. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a baseball arcade game. There's a bunch of like you know classic arcade games that you could play. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Um, and so like it still was an arcade, and I just liked 
seeing how um, arcades have modernized it, um, in that way. Because, like, I don't think they, at least here in the U.S., they don't really have a classic arcade place anymore. Mm-hmm. Or at least they don't in Minnesota. I don't know. I haven't heard of one. I mean, um, even when I was a kid, like, in the 90s, like, mm-hmm. arcades were, like, there were very few arcade, standalone arcades. Yeah. They were usually part of, like, a mini golf complex or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or the right. bowling alley or the movie theater. Right. Yeah, right. Had a section. Side. Yeah. yeah. And there's those two eras of arcades. There's the 80s era of the arcade, which was, like, a standalone, you know, place. Mm-hmm. And then, not that this didn't exist later, but then the 90s era of arcades, which was much more, like, entertainment complex. And then the, the different games associated with that. I think about that a lot. Like, there's the, the Punch-Outs and the Pac-Mans. And yeah. then there's the, the Street Fighter and X-Men. Um, right. You know, and, and the uh, the ones that, that are, like, the giant, um, uh, 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 like, uh, uh, racing games that you actually climb inside. Yeah. You know, that, that came along later. Well, yeah, actually, know? a lot of, like, a lot of those kind of arcades are now, like, Dave and Buster's or something where they still yeah. serve alcohol. But, like, it's a... Um, <laughs> It's it's built where like they have their own specific games and people like a lot of those games are um, gimmicky theme games like based off of movies that are coming out uh, new movies that are coming out or popular mobile games like there are yeah, Flappy Bird games arcade okay, games yeah. which is weird to me um, and My stuff like that. My brain is broken. What's that? <laughs> My brain breaks at this. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's really weird, but um. Like the, I guess uh, because this game is popular, they assume that like it'll get people to come out to Dave and Buster's and spend a bunch of money on tokens. Like that kind of that aspect of games is still prevalent in uh, arcades, modern ones too, where like you just have a ton of tokens and you can use them to, uh, and you like play the game a bunch, and if you die or whatever, you have to put in more tokens to keep doing it. So like it's a, you know, a money grabbing scheme. Um, but like only that, at a place like Dave and Buster's, they give you like a card that you like fill in with money. Yeah, and they 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 keep very li- they they don't make it very easy for you to know how much is left on there because mm-hmm. they want you to kind of just like you. It's it's there's lots of uh, uh, tactics. Oh yeah, there. well yeah, <laughs> like designing an arcade game. There's like there's a lot of different uh, approaches to it, but they all boil down to how can we get people to spend as many tokens on this game as possible. Yeah. Um, which I mean, yeah, that was the the money model back in the day. It kind of mm-hmm. has a similar experience to like microtransactions in modern games now, um, except yeah. like um, it's a little different because like some of them are a lot of them are free. So like they try to get you to spend money by giving you enticing things you'll want instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I just I found that very really fascinating to um, to see how an arcade arcades have like modernized. Um, in recent years, and I guess I wanted to talk about that. That was a long introduction to the, to the topic, but um, yeah, I wanted to talk about like our experiences with our kids. So, um, Stephen, I have a question for you about um, yes. UpDown. So I, I've been there, but it was a long time ago, and I don't really recall. Yeah. Is your sense, you know, based on just your experience there, are the games there set up to really encourage people to use a lot of tokens, or are they making money off like the bar food and the alcohol um uh, i think they're pretty generous with the tokens that they give you i think um and it's kind of hard to it's it's like it's kind of hard to just like move between different arcades and try new things so you like kind of have to stick at one arcade because of how uh the floor layout is but like all of those are all, all of those games are old games and all of those games 
were built to encourage people to spend tokens. So mm -hmm. they are still like the games still, you know, are meant to make money. I yeah. think they also make a lot of money off of the bar. <laughs> yeah, they're generous um, then, with their tokens to keep you there and keep you drinking. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. So. I mean, because arcades are not for kids anymore. Right? Yeah. Which isn't to say there aren't still, you know, skee-ball parlors, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the name I'm giving them. But, <laughs> but like, um, but yeah, a lot of it is about nostalgia. And yeah. so uh, it makes a lot of sense. Because I, I mean, I, you know, I have re not in the too far in the in the in the recent past played through the N N Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game at one of these barcades um, with my brother-in-law mm -hmm. and um, it's kind of fun but like also if I didn't have like the roll of quarters that my sister-in-law gave us yeah. like I don't know that I would have been like interested in like feeding it anybody right. you know right. like the way I might have as a kid you know um, and so I could totally see that like the enticement is less about you know, filling up those quarter bins and more about just keeping you in the place and, and providing it as like a bonus experience to, uh, you know, to the, a dining experience or a drinking experience or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think like, uh, places like Uptown or Dave and Buster's are designed, uh, for that purpose, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, I guess a lot of the arcade games at, at Dave and Buster's are not old school arcade games. Most of them are modern things that they've built for this purpose. And so they, I think more modern games tend to be gimmickier. Like, you know, they have like peripherals and stuff you're supposed to, are explicitly designed for that machine and nothing else. Um, right. Whereas other ones, like, you know, older ones have joysticks and buttons, like the, the, the punch out and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but like, they're still designed, uh, you know, to get people to keep playing it. And I mean, there's an interesting it. hardware note about that, which is yeah. like, there's a really, there's a, you can really get down the YouTube rabbit hole on this, but like, mm -hmm. um, arcade systems were sort of like consoles in that there was an arcade platform that, that many games worked on, right? And they sometimes mm -hmm. even came with in cartridges that you just slotted in. They were like these ridiculous giant sized cartridges and they worked like console systems. They were just really hmm. powerful. And so they needed some universality to them, right? Yeah. And so, okay. um, and then a custom built machines that had unique controls had limited reusability, right? Oh. You couldn't put another game into it. Yeah. Um, and of course, that required more than just swapping the cartridge. You have to change the art and do all this stuff. But like, um, or maybe sometimes it wouldn't have the same number of buttons exactly. Yeah. But like the hardware the, that was designed to be more uh, uh, flexible. Sure. Um, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s. And I think now everything could just run off an Arduino and use any kind of input at all. So it makes more sense to build purpose-built machines. Oh. Which isn't to say they didn't do that in the 90s also, but like that seems to be... It less of a of a of a of a manufacturing risk, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, that makes um, sense. I bet a lot of those machines are explicitly built for Dave and Buster's. So Dave and Buster's is like, I'm going to buy this uh, Sonic the Movie arcade game or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I've even heard so. that in their advertising, like only at whatever, because yeah. they're the only they're the only uh, customer of that kind of product. Exactly. Right. That's probably a pretty stable surface as long as the games are making enough money. That's kind of neat. I mean, no one, no one's going there now, but <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after times. <laughs> but yeah, I think we all kind of grew up past the age of when arcades were popular. But I, yeah, the experiences I had with arcades are basically like um, at a movie theater or at, at like um, maybe they had like an arcade station at our at the state fair or something. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was most of the arcade experience that I had. Is what that similar to all? Oh, uh, what games did I play? 
Um, one one game I really liked when there was a bowling alley that we used to go to when we were in elementary school, and there was this one game called I think it was called Dino Dash or Dino Run or something, and you basically just like time your mashes to this button to get the your dino to run the fastest. Um, but that was super fun. <laughs> I think it was probably just because you get to slam the button really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the game I um, most remember playing as a kid. Yeah. But, but in the yeah, case like, of oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I think I think in the case of our generation um, that because our arcade experiences were sort of limited in a lot of ways, there is one or two games we remember. Mm-hmm. Is is my guess. Yeah. Um, but I'll I'll put that to the test. Uh, Ellen, Martha, when do you want to chime in? Uh, I just remember playing somewhere Pac Man somewhere, but I have no memory of where it was. I just yeah. remember getting frustrated because I'd have to go ask my parents for more quarters. No. Oh. <laughs> and like at the state fair, they have all this, the, the arcade tents or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I just remember going and watching people playing DDR. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, these, right. There's like some yeah. really, really good people, like people go on show off at the state fair and like are just, you know, dancing really, really, really fast. <laughs> Well, yeah, that was like that's a specific thing I didn't consider because I haven't I didn't really play DDR, but like that game brought on its own era of of yeah. arcade stuff mm-hmm. where there were a lot of like rhythm based uh, arcade games that were built because of how popular DDR was, and like um, I know that like it be- became a point where like it expanded to consoles, and you could um, you know you could play DDR at home with the little the DDR mats that they had. Yeah, that was cool. So yeah, there was that time where yeah. the um, those rhythm <laughs> games sort of revitalized arcades, but I think they revitalized wherever they were. It doesn't. I don't seem to recall more arcades being built yeah. in that era. Yeah, necessarily. It just brought some more people to that th- those places that still had you know machines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. At least in America, right? Like um, you know, there, I think the, like taiko drumming is still available at many many locations. In yeah. Japan, right. That's true. Um, like Konami still makes a bunch of stuff, and and uh, it, it, there's other cultures that still have a a, a large arcade presence. But uh, we're just talking about our country here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, Ellen, do you have any arcade games you remember fondly from your youth? I don't remember the name. I do remember our movie theater in the town where I grew up, which was like ruralish Minnesota, ex exurb mm. Minnesota. Um, had a bunch of arcade games. I, I, we would play them like when I was in middle school. We'd go there, and before the movie started, or for sometimes well after the movie ended, um, we'd hang out in the lobby and we'd play we'd play the games there. And I remember there was one where it was shooting asteroids in space. I'm shooting something in space. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but mm-hmm. you know, it was What's... wasn't something I would spend hours at there. Because mm. it was kind of like a before and after activity, but yeah. I would always look forward to getting to the movie theater a bit earlier or staying afterwards to try to, you know, pop some recorders in and do a better score than I did last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh yeah, and I, I bet in movie theaters are uh, particularly well equipped to have people have arcades because arcade games tend to be shorter games, like the sessions. Anyways, they're like five minutes sometimes 10 minutes and like if you're waiting for you you're going to the movie theater and you're looking for a movie to watch and you're waiting for this movie to start you can just go to the arcade uh pop in some quarters or whatever and play some games before you can before seating is opened 
and stuff. Yeah, any anywhere where there's uh, a couple of minutes to spare and a and a large lobby. Yeah, to place a machine or two, like that seems to be conducive. And movie theaters, absolutely. Um, the movie theater that I grew up near and later worked at uh, had a a gauntlet machine, a four player gauntlet. gauntlet. Yeah, and I I grew up with gauntlet on the NES. Yeah. So when then when I became like a preteen and and saw this machine there, and then later as a, a teenager and I worked there, um, like it was it was it was nostalgic already, mm-hmm. and the machine was even older, you know, than than my NES port, right? Yeah. And, oh and, wow! And so that's kind of an interesting sort of backwards way into it. But I also remember that uh, location also had a cruise in USA. Oh, okay. Uh, which was uh, on the Ultra sixty four arcade board. Oh, which was the basis for the Nintendo sixty four? Huh. Okay. Um, and it was when the it, it was uh, like a silicon graphics arcade. It, it actually didn't have like a ton. It was close, but not exactly a Nintendo sixty four. But um, you would see uh, uh, for uh, many people know that Nintendo sixty four was in marketing or in in in, in press called the Ultra sixty four for hmm. a long time before it got its actual name, and they were going to call it that. Um, and I think uh, cooler heads prevailed. <laughs> But, um, but the only place you can still see that as a branding uh, um, uh, expression is in some of these arcade games where that, hmm. sy- where that system was used. And I remember distinctly and then like waiting like, oh, man, like, um, you know, this new Nintendo system is going to come out and it uses a, a, a Silicon Graphics supercomputer. And it was like, you know, huh. bought into all that hype. Yeah, I remember that's that cool. distinctly. Yeah. That's- but the other one is the bowling alley I was at when I was a kid had Mortal Kombat. Ah, yeah. Before before it was put on consoles, and so that I played Mortal Kombat uh, when it was in, in in arcades, and then and, and and got pretty good at it. Yeah, um, and then got it for Genesis later, and did the blood code and all of that. But, uh, <laughs> nice, but I only nice. ever even got it like I, it, even as a kid, I didn't like violent video games. But like mm-hmm. I played in the arcade because it was like one of two machines that was there. Sure, and and so uh, um, otherwise I wouldn't have you know wanted it and played it for as long as i did at home either yeah and then got virtual fighter and actually liked fighting games a little bit in that area era of my youth oh what happened <laughs> i grew up steven <laughs> Ooh, <wow. laughs> dang so i have a question for you guys it's kind of like a future uh, future oriented question but like yeah you mentioned uptown and and barcade trademark um so there's a place you know there's a place in our ecosystem of gaming and and social you know, places, at least for the after times, um, where you can go and you can play arcades and it's a social place. Um, mm-hmm. And the point of you're going to this location is to play the games that are there and have a good beer. Um, yeah. But we've also described, you know, at least in the past, arcade games being present kind of in these staging areas where you are mm-hmm. getting ready to go do something else. You're getting ready for your bowling lane to to open up. You're getting ready for your movie to start. You're waiting for your you know boyfriend to get popcorn, and you're gonna go play a little bit of Mortal Kombat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is there still a space for that, given that you know mobile phones are so ubiquitous? Uh, you can't be as bored sitting in a lobby anymore. Oh, that's a good question. Good question. I hadn't considered that before. Um, I mean, yeah, if you have your phone, you, there's plenty of free games on your phone. Um, uh, there's less of a social aspect to most of those. To the mobile games, um, at least in terms of socializing with people you are with in the moment. So, like, if you play at an arcade machine, everybody can watch you play at the arcade machine, and there are you know multiplayer arcade mach- or games. Um, so, I and think that's a that's a theme to some of these more gimmicky machines, at like a Dave and Buster's, is they have enormous screens. Yeah, they're meant they're meant to be watched by others. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I think that like 
and plus and plus part of the the you know the fancy machines have like gimmicky looking peripherals and stuff that like you know encourage you to come over and see what's up um and like and play something in a way that is unique to that particular game i i just remembered about the fact that we have pop-up arcades happening all the time in the indie game community like whenever Mm -hmm. we show off games at conventions and stuff you have like either um people bring screens or they make uh have projectors and project them onto projector screens or whatever and that's yeah basically it's a traveling arcade or a that's uh, ephemeral arcade (laughs) yeah that's a good point and people play in the same way too they pop in for a minute or two and you know they they it is it's the arcade experience Mm -hmm. even if it's games that weren't necessarily designed to be played in arcades yeah Yeah. okay guys i have an idea we get a food truck right and then we make an arcade truck that just follows the food (sighs) truck around yes (laughs) that wasn't where i thought you were going with that (laughs) I thought you were just like arcade truck, but actually your idea is better. Which, <laughs> yeah, while you're waiting is, for your food from the food truck, you go to the arcade truck. Like also like sandwiches or whatever. <laughs> I yeah, love it. That's, that's pretty good. good. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I was actually curious um, like how, what it would take to design an arcade game, especially in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, there's that there's one popular game that was really popular up down that I played a lot called Killer Queen. Where like you are a team of I think five, and like one of you is the queen, and the other four are like the queen's lackeys. It's like you're like queen B, and then like you compete against this other team. Um, and that's a really cool game because like uh, it's simple enough for people to get into, um, but like complex enough for people to like really get into. <laughs> and so like yeah. I ended up spending most of my tokens in that game to, <laughs> compared to like other games. Um, yeah. And so I think like. I think that is probably a lot of what would make a compelling arcade game is a game where it's really, you know, uh, easy to play, hard to master sort of games. Yeah. Where, like, you can uh, keep, like, the more tokens you put into the game, the better you get at the game and the more um, enjoyment you can uh, squeeze out of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... Uh, I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of arcade games that are built in that way. I know well, that. There's... I mean, no, go ahead. Like, Fingeance is an arcade game. Yeah, it has continues. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's very. Like, cheap, it is. Ex- yeah. It's very explicitly an arcade game. Mm-hmm. And that if it were, if it were in a coin-op environment, it would have that same kind of pull between like, if I'm good enough, I can get through it without spending four dollars. Yeah. You know, like that. That's the, that's part of the motivation, right? It's like you don't feel as like um, ripped off by the the because it's your fault. That you yeah. didn't, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the, I mean, it's a bit of a lie, but it's like a very effective one that arcade machines use to, to drain your wallet. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I'm making it sound very terrible, but like it, that's part of the tension of it. That's part of the, 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 the um, like the, why you don't want to die. It's because you have infinite lives as long yeah. as you have a pocket full of quarters. Right? right. But like it does cost you something to keep going. And so that tension is, is, is part of the, part of the fun in, in ways. Yeah. But I could, I mean, I don't know why have you not thought of this before, but having fingence <laughs> on a arcade machine at one of these barcades it would do very well yes it yeah it would. would do oh <laughs> arcade truck <laughs> arcade truck <laughs> um i'm uh going to think about that uh-huh. and um consider options because you're absolutely right 
I'll help you build the, the cabinet. That sounds. I mean, <laughs> dig. Wow. We yeah. Okay. Hold on. We could. We could. Ooh. All right. Well. <laughs> um. Cool. Well. All right. I guess the the answer to that question is build Fingens. Yeah. Pretty, well, I mean, pretty. I think a lot of uh, people's a lot of people's first games, right? Fingens is your first big game, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the first designs that people put together are very arcade inspired. Yeah. Right. Uh, Metro Nexus is explicitly an homage to an arcade game. I don't know that yeah. it would do as well in a modern arcade environment because there's enough changed about it now. But mm-hmm. um, but a lot of times when you uh, you know indies will make things that are arcade friendly because. Arcades are uh, generally uh, uh, revolve around these like short, snappy gameplay loops. Yeah. Right. Um, and then sort and, and and sort of optional complexity. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. If if it exists at all. And and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's lots of examples. And of course, games in the design process will grow past that a lot of times. Yeah. I think Fingence is an exception in that it really like refined it in a way that it, and it kept its arcade styling in a way. Like it added a lot of depth and complexity and nuance and content, without like uh you know running away from its arcade inspirations. Yeah, right. Which is what sure. happens. That's like, what happens with Metro Nexus. It started out with a lot of those same arcade gameplay, mm-hmm. but then it it just it its design just walked away from it. Yeah, right? sure. And that's which okay. So yeah, happens a lot. But yeah, uh, there's man, probably still plenty of games out there that would just work very well to drop into an arcade system. Yeah. I can imagine the cabinet and all the decorations on it. It'd be oh yeah, so cool! Wow, uh, I had not really considered this, but I am seriously considering it now. <laughs> I mean, That's... just imagine those 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 uh, amazing those little buttons—the left gadget, right gadget. Yeah, um, you know. Oh wow, that's that's big. Yeah, I'm. Um... <laughs> <laughs> now so I'm Steve very distracted drop by this call and go and <laughs> BRB making game. Yeah. Well, you've wow. got plenty of time to plan it because it's going to be a while before you can execute. Right. It's very true. It's very true. I'll just have my own uh, Fingen's arcade cabinet in my apartment. It'll be great. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yes. Build it out of a couple of milk crates. Yes. <laughs> like off the grid arcade, kind of like like off the grid restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we have our there's the um, the local cabinet that has a bunch of local games, the Donutron. Yes. Is at Blamdall Donuts in Minneapolis. That's very true. Yep, and that has a like a I think it's just a um like a a, a PC uh, like stuffed into an arcade machine. It looks gorgeous and it just has a launcher on it and it can run any local game and has plenty on it already. Mm-hmm. Um that's a really cool expression. I I think I I'm surprised that's not more common. As as a thing, because there's lots of like plans on the internet for how to build stuff like that, um, but I think it requires a community of game makers to populate it. Yeah, yes. right. Which we have here, um, and the Donatron folks have actually put together. But um, yeah. I, yeah, I would like to see more of that mm-hmm. in the after times. Yeah, <laughs> or the after times. That's our show. If you liked it, leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app and tell all your friends, too. If you're interested in any of the topics we talked about on this episode, make sure to check out our website, nicegames.club, for more show notes and links to resources. Like with playtesting our games, we are always looking for feedback on the podcast. You can go to nicegames.club feedback and tell us what you think. Get in touch with us on Twitter, at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets game dev resources and pictures of cats or by email at contact at icegames.club. Ask us questions or give us suggestions for topics. So until we start again, remember to... 
Play nice. And, and make, make nice. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.